Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Patty, how are you this week? I am positively splendid. I am off the back of two weeks of holidays, you know? Now, this podcast is actually delayed because, look, I leave for two weeks and everything triage-related just falls apart. You know, I had some things scheduled out. I was like, yeah, cool. We have one for when I'm on holidays. It's all good. Gary, Nicola, you'll get a nice podcast recorded in the interim. Two podcasts even will be ideal, you know? But then, Gary, you decided that, you know, life was a bit too easy. You were you were playing it on easy mode a little bit too much, and you just wanted to, you know, kind of level up and, you know, make things a little bit harder. So what did you do? I decided to rip my hamstrings off the bone. So that was good. Mm, nice. And that's all good now. You're healed up and everything? Yeah. I uh, went for surgery. <laughs> yeah, I required surgery, and uh, now I'm... Three days post-op, so I'm fairly incapacitated and will be for the next few weeks, but uh, <laughs> we're back on the path. Fantastic. And I know you've helped a lot of people with like hamstrings, well, not hamstring surgeries in themselves, but the rehab process from like hamstring injuries and just surgeries in general. So obviously people should be following you on the Instagrams because you're going to be, you know, documenting your stuff. But what are you looking at the timeline wise? What do you, what do you think in your, your prognosis in terms of, your return to play yeah so i suppose like my my marker for return to to sport is being able to get back to jiu-jitsu sparring as normal i suppose that's kind of the marker so i think probably january to march 2023 um which is fairly far away but i i'd say maybe six months to get back to maybe showing up to training and those types of things then another couple of months um onto that for being at my full level of of fitness because naturally you know the injury itself is something that is going to weaken your muscles to some degree because basically the mechanism is uh, like the internal mechanism the muscles start to tear so i actually have like muscle tear and bruising along with the rupture and then that force eventually ruptured the whole thing off. So there's going to be a lot of weakness. It's going to take a lot of time to regain that. And obviously my other leg is going to weaken to some degree as well. So you get a lot of like atrophy or atrophy because you're not using it. You know, it's the same process as someone like, oh, I'm just going to take six months off the gym or whatever. Like, yeah, your muscles stick around. Like it's kind of hard to lose muscle. But if you're providing absolutely no stimulus to those muscles, they go away a lot quicker than you think. Yeah, so I'm going to be in a knee brace for sit for the next six weeks, and I'm going to have hamstring atrophy, I'm going to have glute atrophy, I'm going to have calf, quad, bone atrophy, because that leg is going to be non-weight-bearing. So there's going to be a long enough rehab process there. Um, but thankfully, I probably couldn't be in a better position compared to other people <laughs> in this type of injury, because you know I'm familiar um, with the rehab process. I've helped others through the rehab process. We have Luke on the team, who's another physio that I can bounce ideas off. I obviously know a lot about exercise, I like to think. So I should be in a good position to make a good stab at the rehab, but uh, we'll see how the next few months go. Fantastic. Anyway, that was just a quick life update. Let's get cracking with the actual episode, because this episode is uh, it's probably going to be quite fact-heavy, I suppose you'd say. Um, but it does answer a lot of, well, hopefully at least it answers a lot of questions that people have because we're going to discuss exogenous hormones right we've, we've been doing this female series we've been doing all the stuff related to you know the potential differences in women's and men's health 
um, the potential differences in how you train or uh, do your nutrition or whatever. But there's always a, a question in there. And you're like, oh, well, what about exogenous hormones, right? Like if you say exogenous hormones and you're talking about a man, everyone all thinks, that, oh man, we're talking about steroids here. We're talking about, you know, getting absolutely jacked out of your mind, right? But when we're talking about exogenous hormones for women, generally we're talking about some sort of contraceptive, right? Because that's been the whole, um, I suppose, story for exogenous hormones for women, at least up until menopause, right? It's very infrequent that you'd see someone go on exogenous hormones in just their, their normal average everyday life until, you know, hormones start to de decline. You know, it might be a little bit more frequent for men that they go on exogenous hormones because, you know, people do steroids, you know, you go to the gym, like I'd say maybe 25% of the men in the, <laughs> in the gym are on, on steroids, it, depending on where you live, probably more. Like if you live in a port city, you know, it's probably 50% because there's ease of access to, uh, to drugs. That's why you also always see like really good gyms um, popping up in port cities. And um, it's because there's steroids coming in. But anyway, that's an aside. But for women, it is a little bit different when we talk about exogenous hormones. We're usually talking about contraceptives, you know, or they're using exogenous hormones to induce a, an environment that is not conducive to having children. Right. And um, so let's talk about that a little bit more. We'll start with the kind of obvious ones here, the oral contraceptives. And I don't think we need to do a, a huge, big, like comparative, you know, podcast on like all the different types of contraceptives and whatever. But effectively, the first question I want to introduce with this is, are there better or worse oral contraceptives? We'll, we'll stick to the oral ones. Like obviously there are other ones as well, but we'll just say, we'll just say oral is the, the main focus. Um, are there better or worse ones? Yeah, so we will focus on the, the oral contraceptive pills today because um, I think that's what people are most uh, frequently going to be coming across. And there's kind of other unique concerns when it comes to intrauterine devices and things like that. So let's stick with the oral contraceptives for now. And the question is, you know, are there better or worse options? And of course, the answer is yes. You know, there's not just one option. There are multiple different options. And what I'd like to do is walk through some of the differences between different types of pills and give you an idea of where you're at today in terms of like when you start the combined oral contraceptive pill, what should you expect? You know, what, how does it work? What are the side effects, et cetera? So looking back or taking a, a kind of a, a broad picture first, when you look at the pills themselves, you can get combined oral contraceptive pills or progestin only uh, pills. Generally, it's the combined oral contraceptive pills that people are going to be taking. And then the other options are things like... I'm sorry, just on that, what, what does combined mean? So combined oral contraceptive basically means that you've got a source of progesterone and estrogen, okay? So um, it might be something like ethanol estradiol and your progestin could be multiple different types. And I'll go through the generations of those um, in a moment. So when we say combined, we're talking about estrogen and progesterone um, versus progesterone only or progestin only pills okay so yeah, just on that as well again it just makes sense to think back to the normal quote-unquote uh, menstrual cycle like we basically have a balance between estrogen and progesterone at different phases of the cycle or stages i should say of the cycle that they're going to be in different relative ratios you know so again you'd be thinking okay those two are the quote-unquote female hormones so we're basically supplying them yeah. And then you have the generations, the generations of the pill or the generation of the progestins more specifically, which differentiate 
uh, the different types of contraceptive pill over time. Over time, so I think the 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 oral contraceptive pill was first kind of first introduced in the fifties, and I think improved then in the sixties, um, in line with the sexual revolution in the U.S. and all that. So it was a a good uh, period of time for sexual liberation, if you will. But that it did, it's really important to note that that is a a relatively novel introduction to human life you know that we suddenly have this ability to be more selective that a woman can you know go out into the the workplace um with uh, menstrual uh, products you know in, in the preceding decades and then also can now you know partake in in sexual intercourse with uh, contraception so there's not that you know risk of getting pregnant so that's a, a big introduction to human society yes, so it's often they they say like it's almost like one of those industrial revolutions like it's a, a revolution in society basically being able to be in control of your own reproductive health you know um, and like you, you kind of forget about it because obviously the internet came well about 30 years later uh, than all of this and it's kind of overshadowed just how much of an impact being in control of your own reproductive health has had on society you know like so much has changed as a result of effectively again being in control of your reproductive health you know um, and it is one of those real paradigm shifting things and you actually it's only when you really start to think about it do you realize just how transformative being able to control your reproductive health actually is to society you know like you are now actually able to be a way more present person in society and what i mean by that is you're actually able to engage in so much more of what society has to offer because you are in more control of your reproductive health you know now obviously it doesn't solve solve even all of society's ills it doesn't solve all of society's issues but it is a transformative event for women you know well men as well for society in, in general it certainly is and since that period of time there have been multiple different generations of pill, as I've said, or progestin specifically. So early on, the first generation and second generation uh, progestins would have had a lot more uh, side effects associated with them. And a lot of the time when people read about the pill, they end up reading information that applies to those early generation pills, but not necessarily to the later generation pills. So it's important to be um, clear about what pill you're talking about when you're reading about side effects. So the third and fourth uh, generation, our progestins, which would be things like Norgestimate, which would be third generation. And then the fourth generation is Drospirinone. The thing that's interesting about these is that these um, tend to exhibit fewer side effects, first and foremost, and also less androgenicity. Okay, so the pill uh, can have some androgenic effects. Uh, the progesterone in, progesterone in particular can have an androgenic effects. These progesterones are derived, or most of the progestins at least, are derived from testosterone. Um, but these later generation um, progestins uh, seem to be less androgenic. So that's something that is important. Um, Some of them even have like anti, <clears throat> speak, anti androgenic effects. And you always have to go back to like looking at either, like, you know, if you want to call it the organic chemistry, the, the biochemistry of it, like all of these hormones, well, not all of them, but a lot of these hormones. They have this kind of like cholesterol, we'll say, kind of backbone, and then they just have modifications from that, you know, and the progestins here, they're basically derived from testosterone. So you get cholesterol here, you do all the modifications to get it to testosterone, and then you do a few more modifications to that, and you've got these different progestins, right? So they're still similar enough to testosterone, you know, that potentially they have androgenic effects, especially like the first and second generation, they might've had more 
androgenic effects. But then when we actually get some more modifications, you might actually still get binding to say the testosterone receptor, or I should say the androgen receptor. And you actually just don't get signaling as a result of that. You might get some signaling, but it actually isn't the same signaling as if testosterone had bound to that androgen receptor, you know? So it's very interesting to look at it in terms of the, the biomolecular pathways that occur. And this is also why people use like different steroids in like, you know, bodybuilding and stuff. They're like, right, well, they have different binding affinity to the androgen receptor or they have different effects once they do bind to that androgen receptor. And this is kind of similar here when we're talking about the different progestins, especially the fourth generation uh, progestins, they have somewhat anti-androgenic effects, which again is potentially beneficial for a lot of women, especially if you are dealing with something that potentially, you know, has an excess of uh, androgen androgenic signaling, like maybe you're dealing with PCOS, for example, you might be like, right, I actually want to go on one of these uh, you know, fourth generation, for example, uh, contraceptive oral contraceptives, because I'm getting some sort of anti-androgenic effect along with, you know, the other stuff that comes along with an oral contraceptive. Yes, sir. And to kind of put that in maybe real world, uh, a real world example for people. Uh, Yasmin is one of the pills that a lot of people would be familiar with. And that actually includes one of the fourth generation progestins. So um, it's a combination to my knowledge of ethanol estradiol and drospirinone, which is a fourth generation uh, progestin. So um, that would be one of the newer pills on the market. Now, I don't know all the brand names. It's one of the really difficult things about translating medical knowledge over to practice is that all these different brand names, especially then when you move between countries and everything, but that's a common enough one that people. Yeah. Like when we, when we do, like we have a new client coming to us, we might ask them like, Oh, what, like, you know, <laughs> medications are you on? Or like when we're talking about their overall, like uh, menstrual health in general or their you know reproductive health, we'd be like, okay, well, what oral contraceptives are you using or what's the story there? And sometimes you're getting these random, like, cause obviously we work with people, all across the world like sometimes you're getting these random names and you're like you know, trying to look it up being like what fucking what what brand is this what is this what's going on here what like what, what's the story there's so many different ones that's why we're not going to get into different brands and different types here today and um, but it is important to know that there are differences right so you might go to your doctor they might go yeah you're on this different pill here and you might try that and it might not be effective for you it might not be the one for you because again there's differences in terms of the types of progestins used. A lot of them usually use that uh, ethyl estradiol nowadays. That's usually the one that's most common, the estrogen that's most commonly used, but then they'll vary the different types of progestin that is used, right? So that's one difference, but also you can then have differences in terms of the quantity of the estrogen uh, versus the progestin, you know? So there's differences there. Some people do better with a higher estrogen to progesterone load. Some people do better with the like vice versa of that. Some people do better with a more even. And again, that's a very individualized thing. So unfortunately there's, there, there is actually guidelines for this. You could find them online. Like if people have like these little flow charts and stuff being like, if you try this one, this is your first line intervention. If you got these side effects, do this, blah, blah, blah. But you can find those kind of flow charts online. And I know like doctors obviously use something similar to that. Um, but it is important to know that while we're talking in like broad strokes here, there are still differences. So when we're talking about like answering the question here of like, are there better or worse oral contraceptives? You have to look at this as the broad, you know, generalized thing. And then you have to go, okay, well, how does my body actually react to all of this stuff? Because at the end of the day, look, I'm not a doctor. Gary's a trainee doctor. Nicola is a doctor, but she's not here with us today. She's, she's on holidays um, and she couldn't make it. Um, so 
that is important to understand. I'm an idiot. Gary is clearly an idiot after ripping his hamstring off the bone. So take our advice, or not even our advice, take our information with a grain of salt here. Yeah, I can confirm also that everything I think we're going to say in this podcast has been signed off by Nicola in advance as well. So not definitely not everything because I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Our notes, at least. Um, but yeah, anyway, so as Fatty said, look, there are variations in, in dosing in terms of like the absolute quantity of, of each respective um, drug within a combination drug. But there are also variants in terms of how that drug is dosed across the cycle. So for example, there are combined oral contraceptives that are referred to as multiphasic. And the goal here is intended to kind of match the fluctuations in hormones across the normal cycle. Um, and that would be in comparison or in contrast to a monophasic pill, which would basically give you the same dose throughout. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any advantage for the multiphasic option, really. So um, monophasic is fine. You know, it can just be a consistent dose during the dosing period. And then the second part of that equation is, you know, the, the so-called off uh, phase. So, for example, um, there might a lot of uh, pills will use a 21-7 setup where you take the pill for 21 days and then there might be, you know, empty pills for the seven days or you just don't take anything for seven days. Um, and that's basically giving you uh, nothing uh, or no uh, ovarian hormones during that period of time with the intent of allowing for a withdrawal bleed gen then during that period of time. There are also 24-4 preparations, um, and it seems like that leads to better uh, suppression of ovarian follicular activity, which would be you know, good for efficacy of contraception and may also reduce symptoms associated with hormone withdrawal. So for example, the mood symptoms, the headache or pelvic pain that might be experienced during that time, that seems like they might be reduced on the 24-4 preparations. And then finally, I suppose, like one thing to note is why not just take it consistently? Um, why have these off days at all? And that seems to be something that people are moving towards more and more over time um, because it seems like that the withdrawal bleed may not actually be medically necessary, even though it was thought to be previously, um, and that the suppression uh, continuous, continuously is safe. Um, one thing about that, though, is that you can get some unpredictable bleeding or spotting events um, at different stages during the cycle, as opposed to just having that withdrawal bleed when you stop the pill. So continuous cycle is becoming more popular, um, but overall, it's not like there's huge differences here between, you know, the off days or not off days, but, you know, a, a consideration there would be things like adherence, for example, um, that might be a consideration for people, you know, what symptoms do you experience during those off days? Um, if it's a case that you're taking the pill and then not taking anything for a few days, you know, are you restarting at the appropriate time? All these types of considerations to be discussed with your doctor, really, when it comes to prescribing a specific pill, but that at least gives you some idea as to different preparations that are available and the different dosing schedules that are available as well. I don't know how accurate this information is, but I've heard it from multiple sources. Um, and according to whatever the, the information that I've heard, um, originally they did plan on using the pill for like continuous. That was the initial like, right, here you go. Just take this pill continuously. It's going to provide contraceptive benefits as a result of that, you know? Um, <laughs> But the women in the studies were like, well, I want to actually know that I'm not pregnant. You know, obviously this is at the initial point, you know, they've never been tested you know, wide scale. Like obviously they had been tested, but they've never been tested wide scale. So people didn't have a huge amount of belief in the efficacy of them. So they were like, well, I want to have a period because 
I then at least know that I didn't get pregnant, you know? And so that was one of the reasons that they did bring in that like, oh, here's 21 seven, you know, obviously you have to match the, the quote unquote normal cycle as well, but it gave the women uh, a feedback uh, moment of going, okay, you're, you're not actually pregnant. This is actually working as a, a contraceptive. Now, I don't know how accurate that information is, but it is important to understand that these were effectively designed to be taken continuously. You know, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, there are potentially some negatives down the line when you do eventually come off it. Like I know a lot of people take uh, oral contraceptives for, say, PCOS. You know, they're just like, right, I'm always on it because I don't like they have really bad symptoms of their PCOS if they're not taking the pill continuously. Right. Um, and then when they come off the pill, like maybe they want to get pregnant or you know, for whatever reason, like they do tend to have, in my experience, worse uh, symptoms, but it's hard to tell. Is that just the fact that like you've, you've grown accustomed to having no symptoms, well, no, no symptoms, but reduced symptoms from your PCOS, or is it a fact that you've been on exogenous hormones for X amount of time, you know, and we have to remember that female physiology is different than male physiology, because if you're a male and you take exogenous hormones for an extended period of time, like you're probably going to get some, um, you know, atrophy of your testicles that's probably going to be a, a very common thing you know if you're going to see that in the first like whatever couple of weeks even if you're on exogenous hormones right and um, but that can cause issues with your actual testicular function as a result of that like you can get scarring on the testicles you can get you know uh, a reduction in the efficacy of your ability to produce sperm and different things like that or even produce testosterone in the future right um but it doesn't seem to be the case with women, you know, you don't seem to see those same issues. Now there's potential reasons for that. For example, like the testicles are used to bathing in like, was it like 10 times the amount of testosterone, hundred times the amount, I can't even remember the figure, but way in excess the amount of testosterone that the other cells in your body get. So they're used to that. And that's the signaling that they require. Whereas if you're providing exogenous testosterone, it's not like, Oh, it's going to go straight to my testicles, you know? So they don't get that same uh, you know, signaling uh, that they require, right? Whereas that's not really the same way that the ovaries work. You know, it's not really the same way that the female physiology works. So there's less of a concern, at least to my knowledge, with more continuous use of oral contraceptives. You know, that's not to say that you as an individual won't experience like issues if you're on the pill for whatever 20 years and then you decide to come off. Like, you know, post pill depression is very common. And, um, you know, some people will say that you have an increased risk of infertility if you've been on the pill for an increased amount of time. But it's hard to tell. Like you could just be someone that would have naturally got to a stage where, you know, you're at 35 and you're, you're almost going through a, a, a reduced fertility period anyway. You know, and now you're just like, well, I've been on the pill for the last 20 years. Is it the fact that you're 35 now or is it the fact that you've been on the pill for 20 years? You know, it's hard to disentangle those two things. Yeah, and I think the best attempts to try to disentangle it seem to kind of result in the conclusion that being on the pill doesn't reduce your fertility when you come back on. And there's even some evidence of long-term use where your fertility is um, maybe a little bit better, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't hang my hat on that really. It just seems like there's probably not much of an effect um, on your, your chance of, of conception after coming off it. So a lot of women do have concerns about that. They're worried that you know, by shutting down their ovarian function for a certain period of time that it might return, but it doesn't seem like that's actually supported by the evidence. So um, that's hopefully of comfort, but uh, there's plenty of guidelines out there on that. If you'd like to 
refer to more reliable information. The American and Royal Colleges of Gynecology have lots of information on that. So you can check that out. But one question that you might be thinking now is, you know, how does, how does the pill work? You know, um, and that's a good question. And the, the answer to this is in relation to um, the release of firstly hypothalamic hormones and then pituitary hormones and then ovarian hormones. Okay, so it's all to do with this axis of uh, hormonal physiology. So you get the suppression of ovulation, which is obviously the end target where we don't want to be releasing um, an ovum for uh, fertilization. Um, and this occurs by inhibiting the release of GnRH. So this is gonadotropin. So just say, just on that, you basically, when you're born, you have all of these immature eggs, right? They're, you know, they're stored and then they mature across your lifestyle, lifestyle, can of speak, across your lifetime, you know, after effectively reproductive age. Once you're at that kind of teen time, you know, when you're, you start hitting that uh, menarch, that's when they really start to mature. Um, but you're basically born with all the eggs that you're going to have, right? And then they mature over time because of these hormones that Gary will talk about in a second. But it's also a little bit interesting to kind of think about that being that it was actually your mother who made those eggs. You know, this is why, again, if you look at <clears throat> generational issues, like say people do uh, like studies on uh, the Dutch famine, for example, you know, in Nazi occupation, all that kind of stuff, right? You see effects for like three generations and it's because your mother made the eggs that you have, you know, and obviously look, it's your cells, you know, that's effectively the way it is. But those initial like immature eggs were made by or in your mother's body, like obviously in her womb when you were developing, you know, so her nutrition and her epigenetic signature, all the stuff that was going on in her life, those actually influence her grandchildren as a result of that. So it's important to understand that, like, even though we think of ourselves as completely individual, oh, it's only my lifestyle choices that matter, blah, blah, blah. Like it is a multi-generational, at least for three generations um, that you're going to see effects from what you do or what your mother did or what your grandmother did. Like it, it goes across generations uh, like that. So it's important to understand, right, we have these immature eggs, they're in your body for your life. Um, and then when you reach menarch, they start to develop. And why do they develop? Well, there's a few different hormones that Gary's gonna gonna talk about. <laughs> yeah, so as I said, GnRH or gonadotropin releasing hormone. That's like there's a lot to be learned from the name of hormones in in the chronology. And what you've got there is gonadotropin releasing hormone. Okay, so what that means is that it's the hormone that's responsible for releasing the gonadotropin. So effectively, what happens is that signals to the pituitary, which releases LH and FSH, which are luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone both of which play a key role then in acting on the ovaries um, to you know, permit um, ovulation, to permit um, the, the subsequent process, processes of conception, of uh, development, et cetera, okay? So it all goes downstream from there, depending on what direction we're going in. So are, is there a, a, a normal menstrual cycle? Has pregnancy taken place, et cetera, okay? And again, so, if you go back to that, like, you know, you see those menstrual cycle, like uh, hormones uh, pictures, like again, I think we posted one previously anyway, um, but you can see the different hormones at the different stages of your cycle and you'll see LH and FSH, you'd be like, oh, that mid-cycle point where, you know, you're ovulating, oh, all of a sudden they surge, they go really high, you know? So again, it, 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 you, you see it all interplay. Yeah, so that LH surge that occurs in the middle of the cycle, that's the point at which ovulation occurs. So without that, ovulation doesn't occur and that's suppressed then as a result 
through this process. Okay, so you get GnRH um, is inhibited. Uh, this suppresses the release of LH and FSH, and that suppresses the process of ovulation. Okay, we also get suppression of um, other things related to um, fertilization, related to the uh, reproductive process. So, for example, the endometrial lining of the uterus. This gets atrophied, and also we get thickened cervical mucus. So this stops basically the passage of sperm. You can imagine it's much more difficult for sperm to swim through a very thick medium than it is through a thinner, thinner medium. Okay, so all of these changes as a result of the contraceptive pill are what lead to that contraceptive effect. Now, with that said, does that mean it's 100% all of the time? No. Okay, no contraceptive method really is uh, 100%. Um, other than total abstinence, of course. Um, perfect use of a contraceptive pill, uh, the combined oral contraceptive pill, is tends to lead to 99.7% um, effectiveness, okay, or efficacy. So if everything if, if everything's going 100%, you're using it perfectly, you know, you never vomit, you never miss a dose, everything's spot on, 99.7%. Typical use, um, i.e., the way that most women are going to be using it when it's observed in studies with women on the pill, it seems to be on 93% effective, which is pretty good. And for comparison, the pullout or withdrawal method, um, which many people use, is only 80% effective. So you think about that, that's a one in five chance um, of pregnancy using that method. So not very effective, to be honest. Um, I think a lot of people would reconsider if they knew that there was a one in five chance. And then condoms, 87%. Okay. And again, these are typically uh, used. So as the pullout method and as the condom method are typically used, they're the percentages that you're looking at. And then with all the other contraceptive uh, methods that we you know, mentioned previously, but aren't going to go, um, go into in detail, they tend to be, you know, around or below uh, the level of the contraceptive pill. They're all in that range of kind of 90 plus uh, percent generally, uh, depending on the method. Obviously, if you're looking at things like uh, more permanent sterilization methods like uh, vasectomy, um, you're obviously going to be looking at, at, at higher percentages. But uh, for the most part, that's what you can expect if you're on the pill. OK, now. Another question and another thing that's really important to discuss in relation to the pill, and this would be something that your doctor would discuss with you, are contraindications, okay? So there are certain conditions, certain um, lifestyle factors, et cetera, that would make the combined oral contraceptive pill a little bit less appropriate for someone, okay? So some of those would be older than 35 years, or if you're a smoker, um, a lot of this has to do with uh, the risk of venous thromboembolism. So this basically means that you get a clot. Uh, the you know estrogen in the pill does increase the risk of blood clots. It's still a relatively low overall absolute risk, but it does increase the relative risk. So any factor that would increase your chance of getting a clot would be a potential contraindication for taking the pill. Uh, if you have multiple risk factors for cardiovascular disease, like age, smoking, diabetes, hypertension, um, if you've had a previous venous thromboembolism, you've got established heart disease or previous stroke, breast cancer, migraine with aura is another one. Um, the aura basically just describes that kind of visual uh, experience people have when they have migraines, liver cirrhosis and diabetes with complications like nephropathy, i.e. kidney damage. So all these things would be potential contra contraindications for someone taking the combined oral contraceptive pill. And most of these things they're likely that like you'd be aware of them already. You know, if you've got heart disease and if you if or if you've had a stroke 
or you've had breast cancer, generally you're going to be a bit more careful about what medications you take anyway. So hopefully you're discussing that with your doctor. Um, but it is important because there is an increased risk of blood clots. Obviously, when you're taking exogenous hormones and you're talking about things like breast cancer, that's an important consideration because certain cancers are hormonally uh, related or hormonally sensitive. So you want to be careful about exogenous hormones that you're taking. And then cardiovascular disease, I mentioned a few times there as well. The, there is an increased risk of, of cardiovascular disease. Um, it's still a relatively low absolute risk, but you do get some slight increases in risk when you're on the pill. So that's something that's important to be aware of. Okay. Yeah, and with those as well, especially for um, like blood clots and stuff, like it just pays to, you know, first of all, read the insert in, <laughs> in your medication because your doctor might not have covered this stuff with you. It might have been like, oh yeah, just go on this because they see a you know, relatively low risk with this stuff and they might be like, ah, it's fine, you, you know, it's, it's grand. But you might personally think that that risk is too much for you or you might have forgotten to mention a family history of, you know, whatever, uh, a certain risk factor. Um, so it does pay to actually, you know, read the insert, but then also just become aware of the different like symptoms that you might experience. Like say, for example, I know a good few women that have had like blood clots as a result of the pill usually it happens in the legs, you know, they'll find they have a blood clot in the leg. Um, so just becoming aware of the symptoms of that, you know, becoming aware of like, okay, well, what does a blood clot in the leg feel like? What does it look like? Etc. Um, and what do you do then after that? Like if you're on any medication, you should be aware of the, first of all, the counterindications to taking that medication, but then also the potential ramifications of taking that medication. You know, like nothing is risk-free in the medical world. And um, there's always in the world in general, nothing is risk-free. Um, you just have to be aware of the risks. It's a personal thing. Like obviously your doctor has your best interest at heart, you would hope, but ultimately they might not have might not have the same risk aversion that you have you know so you have to weigh up this stuff on an individual basis for yourself yeah and like most of the side effects associated with the pill are, are going to be relatively mild things like breast tenderness nausea bloating um some women might notice changes in their mood and things like that most these symptoms tend to settle. Like if you get bloating, for example, or you feel a bit nauseous, it might settle down. Uh, but sometimes people might try different pills or different contraceptive options. So that's something you work with your doctor on. Um, but as we said, you know, the, I suppose the three big ones that people often consider in relation to the pill are the blood clots, which as Patty, Patty said, typically going to, you know, uh, get them the legs, uh, deep venous thrombosis, DBT, um, often manifests as like you get redness or tenderness in your calf, um, but unless uh, you've got, you know, other risk factors, it's generally not something that you need to be like really worried about. Um, but it does increase the risk. There is also an increased risk with pregnancy and in the postpartum period as well. So, I mean, you know, if you were to get pregnant as an alternative to taking the pill, like you're still exposed to the risk and a higher risk, unfortunately. Um, and then cardiovascular disease, as I said, it's not a very large uh, concern, but again, there is a uh, an increase uh, in risk and potentially small increase in blood pressure as well. Um, a lot of women tend to have, you know, lower blood pressure than men on average, but you know, it's still, it's still a consideration uh, to keep in mind for sure. Uh, the cancer is, is a little bit of a, a messy one because there's kind of conflicting evidence on breast cancer and there's different types of breast cancer. Um, depends on the, the specific receptors that are involved in the breast cancer, whether or not they're hormone sensitive and to which hormones. Um, and then cervical cancer, ovarian and endometrial cancer are other things you might be concerned about. 
seems like there might be a slight increase in cervical cancer, um, but a reduced risk of ovarian and endometrial cancer. Okay, so uh, the risks in relation to the decision a decision-making process of any medication always involves balancing the pros and cons. So that's why we recommend taking your specific case, discussing it with your doctor, and then they can help guide you based on your past medical history, your current uh, medical state, and the reasons for taking a medication. And then you can start to make a, a, an informed decision that way. Okay. Now, one final note there on that is just that it's not just about contraception. Um, it's an important note. Uh, Although, you know, they're called the contraceptive pills, they are exogenous hormones. And that's why we've used that phrase multiple times. And there are certain cases where um, someone might be prescribed a combined oral contraceptive pill for reasons other than just contraception. So for example, um, as we've actually discussed in multiple of the previous podcasts, things like, for example, pelvic pain related to endometriosis, uh, pain associated with periods, heavy periods that are leading to, leading to lots of blood loss, all those uh, different uh, features of, of menstrual cycle pathology, I guess you could say, um, they can all potentially be managed uh, through the combined oral contraceptive pill. So that there are some indications. Other things would be things like use in uh, uh, PCOS to regulate the menstrual cycle potentially. They can be used uh, to reduce risk of ectopic pregnancy. All these different things that are potentially um, other of the combined oral contraceptive pill. Okay, so there's lots more in there, lots more that you could uh, go through in terms of the effects on, on mood, on PMS, PMDD, uh, what else is there, uh, cancer risks, acne, etc. Lots of different effects, obviously, of any exogenous hormone. Uh, so it does go beyond just the contraceptive effect. Yeah, so Gary, what's the best pill to take? <laughs> whatever one your doctor tells you to take <laughs> that's my diplomatic answer um but look it, it, in all seriousness like the the estrogen um forms are are generally uh, going to be pretty consistent it's often the progestins that people um will kind of play around with so you know the the newer generation third and fourth generation progestins uh, the combined OCP with, for example, like the Yasmin pill, where you've got ethanol, estradiol, and drospirinone, tend to be relatively well tolerated, tend to be efficacious. So those newer generation pills, they seem to be effective for the outcome that you're desiring, while also minimizing uh, the side effects. But again, the specific pill that may be effective or may be best for you might depend on the specific indication and your overall medical history and symptoms experience. So that's my diplomatic answer. Yeah, and I'm going to only add to that and say that if one pill doesn't work for you, there are other options. Yeah. You know, as I said, you can find these flowcharts online. You know, maybe that's not the best place to find them. You can talk to your doctor about this stuff. You can be like, right, this one, I'm getting these side effects. Is there something that we can do to mitigate this? You know, whatever, you know. Um, but I just want to reiterate that you don't have to just stick to the first one that you're given. You can be like, right this one's having these negative side effects that I don't like where I'm feeling X, Y, and Z, you can change it. Cause you often find that people do stuff like they'll just take, you know, the pill that their doctor prescribes or like, yeah, take this one. And they won't keep track of like symptoms. And then they realize like five years later, 10 years later that they've been having like, I don't know, depression since they've taken, <laughs> you know, like they'll be like, this is actually a fairly <clears throat> serious side effect. But because you weren't paying attention to it, because you were just like you know, blindly trusting your doctor, um, 
you won't realize that. But there are other options. So it pays to pay attention to how your body changes, how your body reacts to whatever medications you take, whatever changes you make to your diet lifestyle, um, and then come up with a you know uh, plan of action going forward with that. Like some of those side effects, you might be like, you know what, that's fine. It doesn't it doesn't impact me massively. I'm fine with that occurring. Some of the other ones you might be like, that's actually not what I want to have occur. Like you might notice that your entire personality changes. Like there are other changes that occur that we haven't even touched on. And as a result of like, you're basically playing with your hormones. Like they often say that there's things that go along that are like, it's, it's weird in terms of how much it actually impacts your life. Like people do stuff like they'll meet a partner when they're on the pill. And then when they go off the pill, they actually won't be as attracted to their partner anymore because they're basically in a different hormonal environment as a result of being on the pill. And like that kind of stuff, it, it, whenever I read that, I'm like, this is a, this is like so far reaching, like into your life. Like it's your partner. It's the person that you've you know, ideally chosen for the rest of your life, you know? And all of a sudden the medication that you're on is <laughs> changing your desire towards them, you know, or the medication that you're now no longer on is changing your desire towards them. So that kind of stuff has far reaching impacts. And again, you just have to be aware of that stuff going forward because i'm sure there's many people out there that you know got married they're on the pill and then they're like all right let's have children and then they come off the pill and all of a sudden they're like you know what i actually don't find this guy attractive anymore you know so that kind of stuff it's important to understand that it does have you know far-reaching implications psychological health especially but just in terms of your actual interaction with the world as well but again, there's flow charts online. You can look it up and you can go, okay, I'm having these side effects. What's the next option? Go into your doctor informed, give them your side effect profile. Now, the hard thing about this is everyone, as soon as they start looking at side effects, they start going, oh yeah, I have that. Oh yeah, I have that. You know, they become like a, a hypochondriac and going, yeah, look, I have all of those things and they're the worst and anyone has ever experienced them. So you kind of have to trust your doctor to some extent. But again, you also have to be your best advocate. You're the only advocate for yourself and go, I'm actually having these side effects that I don't like, you know? So there is that little bit of a balance there. Um, do you have anything else to add on that, Gary? No, I don't think so. I think the next question that's important is, uh, right, all this talk about all these facts and, you know, pills and doses and hormones, what does that mean for your training? You know, there's kind of two, two key areas here. One is performance and one is body composition. Um, that's the reason most of you listen to this podcast. So does the pill impact your performance? And just let's just set the scene here, right? If you go online and you look up this stuff, right? You're going to be hit with, oh man, you take exogenous hormones as a woman. Your performance is going to be shit. You know, your body composition is going to be shit. But if you take exogenous hormones as a man, bro, your performance is going to be fantastic. Your body composition, best it's ever been, you know? So is that, is that fact? Is that just the way it is, Gary? Because that's a, if you go on any social media, you do a quick casual Google search or whatever, you know, you're going to come, with the, come away with that general overview. That's, you know, oh, here, take exogenous hormones as a woman, bad. Take exogenous hormones as a man, good, you know? But is that true? Thankfully, it's not, okay? So... For the most part, the, like when you look at the kind of average outcomes in the studies that have been done, it doesn't seem like there's a very significant effect on performance in either direction. There is some variation, 
Um, so, you know, for example, some uh, users will experience a decline in performance while on the co combined oral contraceptive pill, but this isn't a, a consistent finding and it's not a very big effect either from what we can tell. Now, more research would be ideal here uh, on different pill types, different uh, responders, etc. But overall, like from, from my interpretation of the evidence, if I was to start a combined oral contraceptive pill, my assumption would be that nothing will change. My assumption would be that my performance will continue as it was, okay? Now, in some cases, it might be a net benefit. And an example of that would be, let's say before you had really bad PMS symptoms and you had really heavy periods. Um, and now that you're on the pill, you're no longer having those side effects. You might be able to have more productive training during those periods of time. Um, on the other hand, if you start the pill and suddenly you start having, you know, other side effects, like, I don't know, maybe it impacts your mood or it impacts your motivation, or you're getting lots of cramping or bloating or something along those lines. And that might compromise your ability to engage in training. So it depends on your own individual response. And as Paddy noted previously, you do, you don't have to stick with the first pill that you take. So if you want to, you know, make a change to see if that has an effect on your performance because of side effects that you're experiencing, then that is something that's on the cards. But overall, I wouldn't be uh, very confident in, in saying that, you know, the pill has a specific benefit or harm uh, from a performance perspective, because it just doesn't seem like there's much of an effect in the studies that have been done. It also doesn't seem like there's much of a difference on pill versus pill free days, um, which again is something that people might be of interest or might be interested in. You know, if they're coming up to a really hard training session, they know what's coming and it's a pill free day, they want to know, is this going to affect my performance? And for the most part, it doesn't seem like there's much of an effect. It also doesn't seem like there's much of an effect on the outcomes from training. So for example, uh, how you adapt to resistance training, again, there's not that much evidence, but the muscle building or the strength uh, outcomes, it doesn't seem like there's much of an effect of the pill uh, on that. So again, you don't have to worry about it. Again, the, the effects will depend on the pill being used. There will be some variation. Um, but it's, it's, you can't give a generalized recommendation here. There's no generalized one size fits all summary of how the pill impacts exercise performance because it's both pill and individual specific. So that's a really important thing to take away from this. And then finally, you know, one thing to note here again is that if you are concerned about a potential negative effect, um, just consider as well that pregnancy will also affect performance a lot more. Um, and so would heavy painful periods or PMS or other indications uh, for taking the pill. So if it's the case that you're taking the pill to offset another negative experience for you, um, such as painful periods or PMS, which might impact performance, then the pill could be of benefit. So again, it's individual and it's really hard to say uh, whether or not it's gonna be a positive or negative for you. Yeah, and this is the thing as well. When you look at studies, you know, they're looking at a, a population. So they can say, oh, yeah, like on, on the whole, on the average, you know, seems to have no effect. But you have to look at that as with your own lens. You have to look at that and go, well, how did it affect me? You might have, again, gone on a pill and or gone on an oral contraceptive and gone, you know what? Actually, my strength is declining. I'm doing the same things. You know, my stress is the same. My sleep is the same. My training is you know, relatively similar, but I'm not getting the results that I expect from this. You might conclude that, OK, for you, that pill is not the one that you should be using. 
but you still have other options. You know, if you want to be on an oral contraceptive, again, you have other options. And obviously we haven't touched on it in this episode, but there are also other options for contraceptives in general. You don't have to be on, again, a hormonal oral contraceptive pill, you know? So that's something to, to bear in mind, but it is also important to bear in mind that going on the pill can also be a mask for other things going on in your life. For example, a lot of people will go on the pill because they've had menstrual cycle irregularities as a result of having like amenorrhea because they're overtraining. They have that like red S or, you know, that female athlete triad syndrome, you know? And so that's something to be aware of that when you're talking to other individuals and you're talking about their experience about this stuff, you have to take into account what else they have going on. Because I would probably argue that it is uh, a benefit to be on the pill if you are dealing with uh, red S or you know different things like that, purely because you're at least getting some sort of estrogen signaling uh, for bone health and stuff like that. But the unfortunate thing is it tends to mask the issue and then people start having negative performance outcomes because they're in a net negative energy balance almost all the time. You know, they don't have that free energy available to actually be anabolic, to actually get the adaptations from their training. And yeah, okay. They're still having a period, like they're having, you know, a a break, a bleed each, each month because they're on the pill, but it's not actually providing all the signaling that they need because they're undernourished, they're underfueled for their sport, for their activity level. So that is an important uh, add-on to this. You really have to look at the, the broader spectrum with this stuff. And just because you're having a regular quote-unquote cycle because you're on the pill, doesn't mean that you're doing everything right in terms of actually fueling yourself and actually fueling your training. So that has to be taken account of because I couldn't tell you the amount of people that have come to me and said, oh, I was on the pill and, you know, I had issues in terms of my performance went down and all this different stuff. And then I asked them what was going on in their life. And it almost always uh, along, coincides with a period of time where they were underfueling, over-exercising and doing all these things, you know? So we have to take the totality into account when we're looking at the actual experience. And in my experience coaching women, I have seen huge, huge variations in their individual response to different oral contraceptives. Some people, they're like, right, my performance is absolutely fucking trash because of this. You know, it's gone completely in the shitter. I can't do anything with this. I've had other people that, you know, they're on the pill, they're on a different pill, they're on whatever, no effect, you know? And if you are noticing effects or side effects and you're noticing your performance is declining, then again, you have other options with different types of pills. They might be more beneficial to you. Um, It is important to note that regardless of the type of oral contraceptive that you go on, like you are effectively giving this negative feedback loop. So you are going to have a reduction in like androgenic signaling, you know, and that might be a benefit for some populations. Again, if you're on, you have PCOS and you're on the pill to effectively reduce androgenic signaling, that could be a, a net positive for you, you know, whereas you as an individual like yourself, you might've noticed that, oh, I actually have a little bit higher androgenic signaling, but it's actually good because I really enjoy sports. I really enjoy you know, strength training or whatever. And I get really good results because of that increased androgenic signaling, increased androgen levels. And then you go on a pill and you've effectively lost that superpower or you've reduced that superpower that you once had, you know? So again, we have to look at this in terms of not only the you know, mechanistic stuff, but also again, the totality of what the individual is actually dealing with. And unfortunately, 
that is an individual thing. You have to do that on an individual basis. But we can say, yeah, like you're not going to see a massive decline in performance on the average. You know, you might actually see an increase in performance over time because you don't have to deal with, you know, PMS, you don't have to deal with XYZ, all of these other things that you might have had to deal with if you didn't have the option of the oral contraceptive pill. But as an individual, I can't do that analysis for you unless obviously like I'm coaching you or whatever. Um, you have to do that analysis on your own, you know? Yes, sir. And then the final element is what's the effect on body composition? And again, this is an area that a lot of people worry about. They worry that the pill is going to cause weight gain. And some of this stems from, you know, the effects of some of the earlier generation progestins, uh, which were potentially worse for this problem. And there are some types of contraception, such as the Depo Provera injection, which uh, is a more common cause of weight gain. And that is demonstrated in research as well. But overall, the combined oral contraceptive pills, as people take them today, have no direct mechanism that would cause fat gain as such. It may lead to an increase in caloric intake if you note that it impacts your appetite. Um, it doesn't seem like on average that that is the case, but you know some women might uh, experience that. Um, a lot of women experience uh, changes in appetite during their menstrual cycle as it is, and often coming up to or during their periods. So um, the pill might even lead to better appetite management. It just depends on the individual. But overall, it doesn't seem like there's a, a contribution to increase fat gain. Um, when it's been studied, it doesn't look like women starting the pill uh, start to gain more body fat or anything like that, or that it would compromise your ability to lose body fat. With that said, sometimes you can get an increase in weight as a result of bloating or fluid retention. Um, again, as I said, that's generally worse with the earlier generation pills. And we tend to see reduced fluid retention and bloating with those fourth generation progestins like the trispirinone that we mentioned previously. So in summary, there may be effects on fluid balance, depending on the pill that's used. There may be effects on uh, bloating um, or abdominal distension, but overall, it doesn't seem like there's any real mechanism uh, outside of some of the older generation pills and the Depo-Provera injection that would actually contribute to body fat gain or difficulty losing body fat. Yeah. And again, in my experience coaching women, I don't see any real effect with this. Again, some women, they do change pill and then they notice a period of time where, you know, maybe they have mood disturbances. They might have, again, we'll call them lifestyle disturbances, like things go on in their life as a result of changing the pill. Like again, maybe they don't sleep as well. Maybe they, you know, appetite changes, different things like that. So that would be a, uh, an indirect way that it causes weight gain. But in terms of mechanistically, there's no like, Oh, estrogen is going to cause you to gain copious amounts of body fat. Progestins are going to cause you to gain copious amounts of body fat. Like that's not the case. However, again, this goes back to that same thing where you have to look at your individual response to this drug if you start taking a drug and all of a sudden you start noticing man i'm way hungrier i'm you know i'm feeling lethargic throughout the day or you know whatever it is and you start noticing weight gain as a result of that like first of all obviously yeah analyze your lifestyle is if you can change things that you're like all right actually you know this is just happened to coincide with changes in my lifestyle in general cool maybe you can change the lifestyle things but if it's a thing where you're like i'm actually just ravenous all the time <laughs> since taking this pill like obviously that's going to be hard to combat by just making lifestyle changes like you're taking a drug that's clearly making you hungrier so it's going to lead to weight gain if you follow that hunger you know so 
you potentially have to go on a different pill or again, discuss it with your doctor. Maybe you need to do some weight gain. Maybe you've just been underweight your whole life, you know? Um, so this is something that you have to pay attention to the effects on your body look at that and go, am I willing to accept these things? If you are for the effects, like the positive effects that you, you want from the, the, the drug, then, okay, cool. You have to accept those things. If they're not, you have other options. Again, you can discuss this with your doctor. You can look online and you can go, oh, here's one of these flow charts of what the different pill choices would be if I have these different effects, you know? Um, but it is something that I would definitely just discuss with your doctor, tell them you're having different effects or side effects that you don't enjoy um, and they should be able to advise you from there. You know, I know oftentimes, and this is a common experience, at least uh, in a lot of clients that I've talked to, um, people will go on the pill and the only, you know, recap they ever do with their doctor is they go to their doctor every couple of months or whatever, they step on the scales and the doctor goes, yeah, okay, cool. Like you're roughly the same weight. Cool. Um, see you later. You know, and that's the only management they ever get of their medication you know because again the, the pill is generally considered safe so the doctor is not going to spend 30 minutes doing an entire like e examination however again you have to be the advocate for yourself you have to go okay i'm having these effects i'm you know experiencing these things we've been on the pill for the last whatever three months we'll say and i've noted these different things i want to change i want to go into something else like you have to come to your doctor and discuss that stuff you know ideal in an ideal world you know, your GP would just have a, an abundant amount of time to be able to do a lovely medical examination every single time with every single patient and, you know, spend two hours with them if they need it. But that's just not the reality of the medical system the way it is at the moment. You know, you can obviously go into other uh, effectively medical systems. Like you can go into like concierge medicine, like you can literally pay a doctor, have them on a retainer. And, you know, if you want to be able to go in and go, oh yeah, I want an hour consult. You have the doctor on a retainer, you know? So they're going to do the hour consult with you, you know? But again, that's quite substantially more expensive than just going to your local GP who probably has five minutes to, to spend with you, you know? Um, but that is the benefit, you know, and the, the, you know, whatever the negative of having effectively free healthcare in, uh, at least in uh, European countries, uh, well, a lot of European countries and um, with the people that we deal with at least, you know? Yes, sir. And that's the pill. Exactly. You know, now there are other things, obviously this, this episode, we didn't cover uh, a lot of the other contraceptive methods. See, look, we're not doing a podcast on contraception. You know, that's, that's not what our podcast is about, but it is important to also note that beyond just the oral contraceptives, beyond just hormonal contraceptives, because you can get like interuterine devices that are hormonal and you do still have other options. Like you have stuff like the, the copper IUD, you know, which isn't hormonally driven. For some people, they really enjoy that. They're like, this is a, a benefit. It doesn't sound like an, a pleasant experience uh, getting it <laughs> uh, you know, inserted. Um, but look, if it gives you the effects that you want, happy days. you know. Um, but there are other options. You just need to be aware of that. You need to do your own research. You need to talk to your doctor. You need to talk to someone that you trust uh, as knowledgeable about this stuff and then make a decision based on that. You might be like, look, I actually don't want to take contraceptives i'm happy being abstinent or i'm just going to use condoms or whatever it is you know that's again a decision that you have to make based on the results and the you know effects you want to get from the the medication or whatever and again 
you need to consult with your doctor on this stuff. Like if he's saying you have PCOS and you need to be on the pill, like going, oh, I think I'll just uh, use condoms instead of that for contraceptive. Like obviously that's not going to help with your PCOS management, you know? So again, you have to be, be smart with this stuff. You have to self-educate just like you do with any medication that you go on. You have to be an advocate for yourself. You have to effectively do the research yourself. Like, yeah, outsource to smarter individuals, you know, more knowledgeable individuals. But at the end of the day, this is your body. You know, you only have one life. So you need to make sure that what you're putting into your body and the effects that you're getting from that are conducive to the goals that you have, the lifestyle that you want to lead, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, but again, there are other options which we haven't covered in this. There are also other situations in terms of, you know, effectively where we would use exogenous hormones, right? And one of those is in regards to menopause, hormone replacement therapy in regard to menopause, right? And we'll talk about that in a future episode when we talk about menopause, but I do want you to be aware that this is one of those things that always happens. People always think of like the oral contraceptive pill. And then when they think about the typical user of the oral contraceptive pill, they think about like 18 year olds, 20 year olds, you know, someone in their twenties, but you have to remember that people are still using the oral contraceptive pill up until menopause, you know, it's not like they just go, oh yeah, actually, you know, I'm just going to stop using that. Yeah. Okay. I, maybe I'm married now. So, you know, it's fine. Like that's not the way it generally works. People will continually use it for their lifetime. And then the next stage that they get to menopause, you know, we have to discuss slightly different things in regard to that. And obviously, again, that depends on what has been going on throughout their life, because very often there's another event in between that, that also changes your use of exogenous hormones. And then also, puts you through some pretty wild changes in terms of endogenous hormones, in terms of your own hormones. And that is pregnancy. Now, obviously not all women are going to get pregnant, go through pregnancy. Maybe they don't want to, maybe it just wasn't on the cards for them, whatever, but it is something that a lot of women obviously engage with, (laughs) deal with, whatever you want to say. Um, So we're going to cover that next, and then we're going to get onto the menopause stuff. Right. Um, But anyway, Gary, do you have anything else to say? I need to wrap this episode up or just anything in general. Yeah. So guys, if you are interested in more specific help with your training, nutrition, rehab, etc., we do have coaching spaces available. All of our coaches currently have space. So if you are interested in working with us in a training and nutrition capacity, rehab capacity, nutrition only capacity, whatever you're interested in, we can hopefully help you out. The information about that is in the description box below. And you can also just contact us on any of our social media platforms or info at triagemethod.com if you'd like more information about coaching, okay? Our social media, you can find us at triage method on Instagram. You'll find all of our respective coaches there. Um, and that's the best place to follow along. If you're not on social media or you want, you know, something into your inbox, we do have an email list, okay? We send out information to our email list, um, exclusive articles, things like that, updates that don't generally go on our social media. So if you want to be fully informed, then I would recommend uh, subscribing to the email newsletter. And uh, other than that, you know, make sure that you share the podcast if you like it. We've been doing lots and lots and lots of female specific content now for most of this year if you've been enjoying it if you enjoyed this episode or any episode leave a rating and review if you can but at least give it a share in your story or maybe with a friend or in a private whatsapp group or whatever it happens to be but we appreciate those of you who share it we appreciate those of you who listen and uh, we hope that we can continue to provide you with value each week um i have nothing else to say so uh peace out